Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. So I'm pleased that you're all here to listen. I'm Les Crawford, one of the elders here. I also work full-time with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, and that will be quite relevant to this message tonight as well. Uh, For those of you who have been coming regularly, you know that we've been doing a series on worldviews, and this is our fourth instalment, I believe. And tonight we're focusing on Judaism. And of all the options that we've had a look at so far, and particularly I did the session on Islam, this one will seem the most like biblical Christianity, most like our worldview. And that's not surprising because (laughs) there's a very strong connection between ancient Judaism and biblical Christianity. But appearances can be deceiving. For example, uh, with biblical Christianity, Judaism believes in one and only one God. And that's what we believe. That's what Christians believe, that there is only one God. But when we look a little closer and see the description of this God, who this God is, even though it's contained in the Old Testament, the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, the definitions vary significantly between Judaism and biblical Christianity, or just Christianity in general. So tonight I want to do a contrast between Judaism and biblical Christianity, and I'm going to kind of answer the question, why I'm not kosher? Uh, Kosher being the Jewish word for aligned with the law, compliant with the ceremonial and dietary regulations that uh, Orthodox Jews keep. And if you're in Israel, you have to watch out that you actually keep kosher. You can get into trouble if you don't. Now, as I mentioned before, I'm serving with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And so I want to put a little preamble in before I actually get into the message in depth. Uh, Because it's kind of easy to look at these kind of messages as being critical and negative towards other religions, other faiths. And I certainly don't want that to be the case when we're looking at Judaism. Uh, And the reason I say that is because I greatly appreciate the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Otherwise, I wouldn't be working with an organization called the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. It wouldn't make a lot of sense, would it? And you really need to know why. So if you put up that first slide, I think we'll find a little bit about why. And the first thing I want to remind you of is that Jesus was Jewish. You may forget that. You also need to be reminded of the fact that the apostles were Jewish. And then the Old Testament scriptures, which I hope you read as part of your whole Bible, they were Jewish. And then the beginning of the church in the book of Acts was Jewish. And I could go on. In fact, I have a whole message on this whole topic of why the church should be friends of Israel based on these realities, these truths. And so my message this evening is not intended to be negative. It's actually hoped to be informative and maybe better than that, transformative. So let me pray and we'll open the message in proper. 
Thank you, Lord, for this time that we can spend together. Thank you for the scriptures, uh, even that wonderful passage from Galatians, which so narrows the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. Uh, thank you that we can look, uh, hopefully faithfully and accurately, at other worldviews and see how they compare with what you have revealed to us as the biblical worldview. So bless this time. Help me to be clear and help me to be interesting. Uh, help people to be able to engage and learn. And most of all, may it be practically helpful and even spiritually transforming to each of our hearts. And this we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, one of the difficulties we have with worldviews, when you look at a large worldview associated with a large religious community like Judaism, is that there's so much variety. You know, within Judaism, we don't just have one narrow, clear, well-defined group. We have a number of them. So we have Orthodox Conservative Judaism. Uh, not a very large group in Adelaide. If you try to find that particular group at the synagogue, you'll find it's a very, very small community. Uh, and then we have Progressive Reformed Judaism. And there is a progressive synagogue in Adelaide, and it has a female Jewish rabbi whom I've met. She's lovely. Uh, again, a small community in Adelaide, very different from the Orthodox Conservative group. Now, the fact they have a female rabbi is immediately going to tip you off. Not common with any conservative groups. And then you have the Sephardic and the Hasidic versions of Judaism. And you have other smaller sects as well, quite a few. And so tonight, I'm just going to hit the big ones in terms of the beliefs. I'm not going to try to narrow down to all of these subsets because it would be uh, more like my Islam message, which went for 50 minutes, I think. And I don't really keep you here that long tonight. So relax. It's going to be okay, <laughs> I hope. So we're going to have a look at a couple of elements in a worldview that are important for us to comprehend. The first one of them is authority. Where does this worldview get its authority? And for Judaism, it's sacred texts are their primary authority. Uh, most of all, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And the reason that's their primary authority, because that's where all the description of the ceremonial laws, the civil laws, the dietary laws, all of the things that govern life for a Jewish person in the Old Testament and then carrying on to the New Testament, that's in the Torah. That's really significant for them. Uh, and they have scrolls. If you ever go to a Jewish synagogue, they have what's called the Ark. Uh, and that Ark is an enclosed section at the front of their synagogue, which contains these very precious, sacred scrolls, uh, which include the whole Tanakh, the entire Old Testament, can be there. They're large, they're heavy, and they treat them with huge amount of respect. Uh, in fact, you get the honor of actually taking a scroll from the Ark and then presenting it to the synagogue congregation, and you go in the procession throughout the congregation, and they will actually kiss a prayer shawl and press it against the Torah scroll or the other scroll that's there from the Tanakh, and they would view that they can't really touch it. It's too precious and holy to actually be contaminated by my sinful touch. So they do that in a really special way. Uh, it's quite an interesting thing to watch and observe uh, their attitude towards their sacred writings, which for us is the Old Testament, basically. I mean, the Tanakh is the Old Testament. It's uh, in a different order to what we're used to. It's got 22 versus uh, our 
kind of order. Sorry, 24, not 22, 24 books. Um, so the arrangement is a bit different, but the content is basically the same as ours. Of course, you need to learn Hebrew to be able to read it, which is a little challenging, uh, but that's the way it is. Uh, they also have as additional authorities the Talmud, which is a collection of interpretations of the Torah, and also some extra laws. I mean, the Jewish approach to life is, let's make it well-regulated so that we keep within the bounds of what is righteous. So we'll just make up more laws to keep the laws that we've already got. It's like putting fences away from the fence that's next to the cliff so you don't go over the cliff. That's kind of how it works. They also have the Mishnah, which is another collection of interpretations of laws that pretty well govern everything. You know, whether you sneeze on a particular day, whether you light a fire on a particular day, whether you travel X number of kilometers on a particular day, it's got it all. And of course, the Jewish rabbi is the, the personal or the present authority of Judaism. Now, when we compare that with our faith, the Christian faith, it sounds quite similar in part because... Our faith is based on sacred texts, including the Old Testament. Uh, we, of course, have the New Testament in addition, so we have a whole Bible from Genesis through to the book of Revelation. And it's interesting that the New Testament documents actually refer to the Old Testament documents a lot because they are the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophetic scriptures in a large part. Uh, there is more to come, of course, in God's plan. So for us, the Bible is the only biblical authority. It's the only authority that we can rely on and trust in. Now, interpretations are helpful. In fact, when we have preachers, Carl this morning or Timon regularly, uh, they are interpreting the scripture normally for us. And we hope that they are biblically sound and accurate. Uh, you should be testing them, reading the Bible for yourselves to make sure they are. Be good Bereans. But those interpretations are not authoritative unless they express the truths of Scripture. Then they are binding. Then it's like God has spoken to us. And so our pastors and elders kind of are like rabbis, but we don't use that term, do we? I mean, Jesus said, don't have anybody call you teacher. And yet we do have pastor teachers, so there is a place for that. Uh, and the pastors and elders are responsible for teaching the word of God and also for correcting doctrinal area, uh, error. You look in 1 Timothy 5 verse 17, it talks about a teaching elder needing to be honoured for the role that they have in ministering the word of God. And in Titus 1 verse 9, we also read about uh, the responsibility of elders to Make sure that doctrinal error is not allowed to spread within a community. So uh, my responsibility as an elder is a very serious one. And I do take it very seriously. But we don't have the multiple, multiple, multiple regulations. Now, if you're in a legalistic environment, and unfortunately there are legalistic churches within the Christian faith that set man-made rules to hopefully keep spirituality alive and well. But actually what it does is it kills spirituality. And Galatians is actually addressing that issue. It's telling us that you, know, you can't live the Christian faith by law because the law kills. You can only live the Christian faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And therefore, law is important because it shows us our sin. Uh, it is a schoolmaster that will lead us to our need of a saviour. 
but it's not powerful enough to transform us. All it ever does is condemn us. We're so far short of it because God's law is perfect and we don't keep it. And the thing about God's law is that you have to keep all of it. You can't just keep a little bit and think, yes. No, you've got to keep the entire law. And no one can do that. Only Jesus ever did it. But good news is Jesus does it on our behalf. So authority is important. And you need to always ask a question of any worldview is, what is their authority? Whether it's Islam and it's mainly the Quran, and whether it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's mainly the Watchtower and their publications, and whether it's the Mormons, it's primarily the Book of Mormon and the writings of Joseph Smith. Whoever it is, you have to ask the question, by what authority are these groups presenting their case? And then you can compare it with this book. And this book will rise above them all every time. Because this is actually the true authority. It's the revelation of God. Now the next area you want to look at is God himself. What does this worldview tell us about God? Well, as I mentioned... Judaism, along with Islam, is a monotheistic religion. There is only one God, not multiple gods, not no God, just one God. And in a Jewish way of thinking about God, he is a supernatural person. He is the creator of the universe. He's the creator of humanity. And so we have had a divine uh, outcome that's produced everything we see and even who we are. And he's eternal and spirit. Distinct from creation, not like pantheism where the creation equals God and God equals the creation. No, he's distinct from creation, but he's also active within creation, sustaining and keeping it as well as working out his plan. And he is incorporeal, which means he is without a body. Being a spirit, he's not confined to a geographical, spatial dimension. Now, all of those things we actually would believe except we need to define this supernatural person. And Deuteronomy 6.4 is the catch cry of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, that Shema is one of the most powerful declarations of Hebrew faith. And so we would affirm pretty much all of this, except when it comes to one person. Our understanding from the scriptures that God exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there are a couple of passages which are pretty clear about that, either by implication or direct statement. I don't know whether you've ever looked carefully at the Great Commission. It's unfortunately the Great Omission too often. But the Great Commission, which is that command that was issued by Jesus to his followers, including us today, where he talks about going into the world, making disciples, and we baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, normally, good grammar would say, in the names, because we've got three people, right? But no, we have one God. So it is one name with three expressions, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't have time to go through all the texts that prove the deity of Jesus or the deity of the Holy Spirit, his real personality. I mean, that's a theological lecture series at the Adelaide College of Ministries as it was. But John 1 verses 1 to 18 makes it pretty clear that Jesus is God incarnate. In the beginning, the Word was with God. The Word was God. 
And in John 1.14 says that in the flesh, was, it was manifested, the word became flesh, incarnate. Now, Acts 5 tells us in that story of Ananias and Sapphira when they actually sought to present themselves as as spiritual as Barnabas, selling property and giving it to the church. Uh, they sold property, but they thought, oh, you know, 100% is a little bit too much. We'll keep some for ourselves, but we'll actually give the impression we've given the lot. And the result was that they were found out. The Spirit of God revealed to Peter that they were lying. And it said that they lied to God, but they lied to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit equals God in Acts chapter 5. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, we learn that Jesus is God and Saviour. There are quite a lot of clear testimonies in the Scriptures about the identity of Jesus as God in the flesh as truly God, distinct from the Father and distinct from from the Holy Spirit. I love the baptism of Jesus. You know, he is Jesus submitting to baptism under John. And as he's being baptized, there's a voice that comes from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. There's a dove that comes and alights on Jesus representing the Holy Spirit. So we have the Godhead all in one event. And I don't think Jesus was a ventriloquist who could throw his voice and give the impression that the Father was speaking at the same time as he was being baptized. In fact, underwater, you would be very difficult to say anything of any significance that anybody could hear. And so we affirm there is one God, but there is three persons in this one God. And we also affirm that God is without bodily existence, except we had a very unusual event in history. There was a baby born to a virgin woman, and the baby's name was Jesus. And God took on human flesh to be one of us for the very purpose of saving us. And that humanity of Jesus, the divine and the human joined together, which is a mystery that's very difficult to process, the infinite God and the finite human, that's very difficult to process, didn't end when Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven. When Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, he says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You know, there's a divine glorified human being in heaven, Jesus himself, right now, right at this moment, with permanent humanity. And he's our Forerunner. He's the guy who's gone in front and paved the way that we get the opportunity to join if we love him, if we know him. So what about humanity? What about us as human beings? What does Judaism think about us? Well, Judaism teaches that we are made in God's image with a capacity for choice. And we are made with these two conflicting desires. One for good, which is Yetzirah Tov. Tov is the word for good. And one for evil, Yetzahara. Ra is the word for evil or bad. So we have these two competing desires, motivations, inclinations within our being. And therefore, they don't believe that humans are inherently good or evil. They're kind of like morally neutral, and it's what they do that defines what they become. So you become what you do. Now, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, which is where they would have gotten the concept of image bearers, is very biblical. We are image bearers. We're not just the same as dogs, cats, or even chimpanzees and apes. We are a distinct creation, different from all of the animal kingdom. We are image bearers, beautifully described in the book of Genesis. 
but we would differ with their understanding of our fallen condition. Adam and Eve were created perfect and good, but unfortunately they rebelled against God by disobeying his command concerning the fruit that was born on the tree of good and evil. And so they fell. And in their fallenness, they became sinful. And that sinfulness has passed on to every one of us. It's a part of our humanity now, unfortunately, because it means that it has to be dealt with, and it's been dealt with very directly and quite significantly, obviously, in the person of Jesus. Now, if you read Romans 3, verses 9 through to 18, you'll get a very clear picture that humanity is in a lot of trouble morally and spiritually. You know, there's none righteous. There's none who does good. There's none who seeks after God. Uh, we've gone astray. Uh, the poison of asps is on our lips. So, you know, we're speaking snake-like, you know. It's really a nasty description of our humanity. But it is the truth about who we are. And so it's not a question of, you know, if I follow my good self, I'll be a nice person. If I follow my bad self, I'll be a bad person. No, unfortunately, we are inherently sinful. So that creates a problem. Because then we're not unable, sorry, we're not able to act in a way that will actually please God. We are not able to be righteous in ourselves. And so when we look at sin from the point of view of Judaism, uh, they believe basically, as I've said, that human beings are morally neutral. They have a capacity for good or evil. Uh, so in Judaism, there is no need for a saviour. There is a need for a Messiah to come and sort things out, but it's not a personal salvation. It's not for you to actually be forgiven of your personal sins so that you might know an intimate relationship with the one and only true God. Sin does exist. I mean, they've got enough laws to sink a battleship. and You'll be breaking them every day. Uh, even the best of the Jewish persons cannot keep the entire law. And so they understand that you can fall short of God's law. You can break God's law, action or inaction. But you deal with that through ceremonial compliance, uh, repentance. They do believe in repentance, that you actually have regret over what you've done and you seek to make restitution for the things that you may have uh, violated or hurt in other people. But then you've got to do some good works. You've got to continue in a good life. And the amazing thing about this is that violations in relationships with people are considered more serious than one's relationship with God. Now, I can sort of understand that because, you know, people are there. <laughs> you have to deal with people. If you, if you upset somebody, you've got immediate consequences. If you're upsetting God, well, I mean, you know, what's going on here? I mean, things are the way it's always been. I mean, so I can sort of understand the practical experience of that. But when we think about who God is and we think about who we are, there's a huge gulf between the status and the authority and the identity of God compared to the status and authority of any of human beings. You know, I really wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of the omnipotent God who has the power to consign me to an eternal loss. But in Judaism, they don't think that way. They don't think that way. And this is perhaps one of the most insidious differences between biblical Christianity and Judaism because it actually conceals the need of salvation. It covers up my personal accountability to this holy God. You know, everyone 
all humanity, no matter who you are, what religion you may be a part of, uh, what your status is, what your background is, we are all in the same boat, which is sin. And we all need salvation. And I can express that very simply. If you do not love God with your entire being, you are falling short and you will give an account for it. You might think you're a good person, that you've done nice things. My mum used to think I was a lovely young boy. Used to, you know, be nice little les. You know, the fact that I shoplifted and got caught twice, I mean, that didn't really change anything. I mean, I hadn't done anything really bad. I mean, I hadn't murdered anybody, I hadn't robbed any banks. I mean, I did take some things that didn't belong to me. Um, but, you know, I really hadn't done the big ones, you know, those really heavy hitting sins. And so I was a good person. I wasn't a good person. And so in Judaism, you tend to live an improved life. And, and most Jewish people, you'll find, are good citizens. Uh, they want to be uh, respected. They want to be liked. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of dislike towards them in the world. But it's all by personal effort. It's all by their own Achievement And Paul mentions that in Romans. He talks about them having a, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And the consequence, they try to establish their own righteousness rather than receiving the righteousness that came by their Messiah, Jesus. And so when you assign moral achievement to your personal effort, guess what happens? Oh, what a good boy I am. You know, human pride just thrives on this stuff. You know, I'm a great lad. You know, I've done that. Oh, awesome. I should be... Praised. And Paul says, you know, <laughs> when I've done all, I'm still just a servant. Still a servant. I'm nothing great. I'm nothing special. I'm, and yet we look at Paul and think, whoa, what an amazing man. How tragic that offending people would be a bigger problem than offending God. That really skews things very badly. Well, what about the afterlife then? This is sort of the next step in where we're headed in understanding this worldview. There are variations, as you would expect, but the rabbis basically teach two options. You get reward or punishment. Sounds pretty familiar. The reward for the righteous is to live in the heavenly garden of Eden. That sounds attractive. For the wicked, you get 12 months suffering in Gehenna, then annihilated. I mean, 12 months suffering in Anna doesn't sound so good, but annihilation, well, that's certainly dealing with things finally. But it doesn't really address the whole issue of how offensive sin is. Now, biblical Christianity is quite similar to this because we do believe that there is reward and punishment, that after death, and there are significant differences between those two outcomes, for the righteous who live by faith, for the glory of God, there is reward. Huge reward. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15 will tell you that there's gold, silver and precious stones that are available to reward the righteous who live by faith for the glory of God. That's very important. It's not earned. It's actually a faith walk for the glory of God and it's a grace outcome. But there's also loss at that judgment. If you go to that passage, you'll see that there's a fire that tests the works to see whether they survive that scrutiny and the wood, hay and stubble goes ashes but the gold, silver and precious stones remains. 
So yes, there's reward for the righteous who are actually believers, genuine Christians. And that is a grace work in the life of his children. John 15 says, without Christ I can do nothing. Paul talks about, you know, Apollos planted. Uh, what was it? I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. God was the one who did the work, ultimately, and used us to his glory and for our good. And so it's an expression of grace, not self-effort. The Bible also teaches that there is a judgment. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, tells us that there's a great white throne one day that all those who are not in Christ will give an account before and nobody in that great white throne judgment goes to heaven. They all get cast into the lake of fire. Unrepentant humanity, this is not temporary suffering, 12 months in a place of torment and then annihilation. This is eternal suffering, which is one of the most difficult doctrines of the Bible. It's one of the hardest doctrines, but it is appropriate for the offense of our sin against the infinite holy God. So then what is the solution to this? This is the future afterlife, possibly, one way or the other. What about salvation? What does Judaism teach about salvation? Well, as I said, it's really a religion of works. Now, you can earn entrance into this heavenly Garden of Eden through living a good life. And the good life for a Jewish person is basically keeping the Jewish laws uh, within the specific tradition you might be a part of. Uh, so it'll vary. It'd be much more relaxed within a progressive synagogue environment than it would be within a conservative synagogue environment. You're expected to repent if you do something wrong. And then you should do better in the future. So it's really a self-improvement faith. Now, this is the quote from Being Jewish, which is an online uh, web page. If you do good, you get good. Now, that sounds more like karma to me than biblical truth. If you do good, you get good. That's why many Jewish people would ask a question about the Holocaust. Why did such a terrible thing happen to us who are trying to be so good for God. And it produces atheism. Because can't, you can't process it. With this worldview, if you do good, you get good, well then that's what you should expect, right? And how many good people do you know that don't get good? Probably not as many as there are in the world. And it's one of the big issues of the worldview is, you know, how do you explain suffering? How do you explain evil? How do you explain the fact that I seem to be doing right, but I'm getting wrong? Or you've got people who are doing wrong, but they're getting right. How do you explain all this stuff? Well, I'm not trying to do that tonight, but the Jewish worldview won't explain it very well at all. And it's easy for Jewish people to despair. Now, there's even some within Judaism that would say that if you're Jewish, you're guaranteed. I mean, it's, it's a done deal. You just have to be born a Jew, and then everything's cool. No matter how you behave, you're going to get to this heavenly Garden of Eden one day. 
And here the contrast with Christianity couldn't be greater. You know, biblical Christianity is not a religion of works. You cannot earn your entrance into heaven. It is solely by grace through faith that much-needed forgiveness is obtained. And we've done a series in Ephesians, and if you remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you've got the core of what it means to be made right with God because it's by faith, according to grace, that you receive your salvation. You don't get it because you've earned it. You know, simply stated, Jesus the Messiah has done it all. His death, his resurrection covered it all, everything. Your sins, past, present, and future. What I love about God's grace is that it's all-encompassing. It doesn't leave anything undone. And the amazing thing about God's grace is that he's known Les Crawford before I was ever born and when I get to glory one day and he's known the life that I've lived and all the sins I've committed even now knowing him, experiencing the amazing transformation of conversion, of being made new in Christ and still I'm sinning. And his love remains, his grace continues, and I'm going to get there. Not because of my performance, but because of his performance. Because of Jesus' work on the cross. You see, salvation is offered as a free gift. A very costly gift to God, but a freely offered gift to us as his lost children. And you live the Christian life by faith as well. Not only do you receive it by faith, but you live it by faith. You know, the early church had to deal with the error of legalism or trying to achieve spiritual progress by keeping laws. That's what this passage in Galatians was all about. You know, we're attracted to self-achievement. We really are. Because if you achieve something on your own, by yourself, you've got something to boast about. You know, if you go out and you hit a century in cricket, you don't come back and say, oh, yeah, that was an accident. <laughs> now, in my case, it would be a very big accident. But you know, I hit the century, so I should get the accolades. You know, where's the trophy? You know, I hit a hole-in-one once in golf. Yeah, I really did. I mean, it's a par three. I mean, it was probably only 170 metres. It wasn't very long. But it actually went in the hole. Boom. I'm going, where's the ball gone? <laughs> and my friend, I had a witness, my friend said, it's gone in the hole. I said, you're kidding me. I said, I need a trophy for this. This is it's amazing. You know, I want to boast about this. You know, that's what we do. It's what we're attracted to. Self-achievement is very attractive to human beings who have fallen because we want the accolades. We want the pat on the back. We want the trophy. It's not the way the Christian world, uh, the Christian life works or the Christian worldview. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians. They were full of this stuff. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Implication? Nothing. He then says, If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The Corinthians were unfortunately self-possessed and they needed to be corrected and Paul did a gentle and firm job of getting that correction across 
You know, the Christian life is lived by faith, not by works. It's independence on God, not on self. You know, the idea of repentance is a biblical idea, and so Judaism's got that part right. Repenting over the sins that you've committed is good. Uh, it should be your response to sin. You should turn from your sin back to God. That's the way you should respond with that failing and that sinning in our lives. But it's not a path to self-improvement. It's not what it's about. It's a path to reaffirming your dependence on God. That's what it's about. Saying, oh, I can't do it. Look, I've just shown you. I can't do it. I'm messed up again. Lord, I need you to make a difference in me because I don't make that difference by myself. It deals with the reality of your yet unperfected state. You still have sin abiding in you if you're a believer. It restores fellowship with God, though. And that reconnects you to the power of the Holy Spirit and that enables you to live out this righteousness that you've been granted in the person of Jesus. And one more thing just to emphasize, that biblical Christianity is not bound by Old Testament ritual and ceremony. The feasts and Sabbaths that, that uh, were required of Israel in the Old Testament, and some believer apply today, pointed to something greater than them. They pointed to the Messiah, the sacrifices pointed to his sacrifice. The celebrations pointed to all that came with what Jesus would accomplish. And it's great to have food. It's great to have fellowship. And in the Old Testament, they did that a lot. But it wasn't an end in itself. It was pointing to something greater. You know, Jesus said things like, greater than the temple is here. The temple, that's the biggest of all. No, Jesus was bigger than the temple because the temple pointed to him. He was God's temple ultimately. And actually we've become God's temple now. So the feast and the Sabbaths have been fulfilled in Jesus. So I don't have to worry about whether I'm eating the right foods or whether I'm keeping the right schedule of festivals. I don't have to worry about whether I'm doing certain things on certain days. I don't have to worry about that. All I have to worry about is am I pleasing my Saviour? The Lord Jesus. Restricted diets of food and drink no longer required. Look at Colossians 2 verse 16. Look at Colossians 2 verse 17. God has dealt with it. So we're set free. That's why I'm not kosher. <laughs> I told you I'd answer that question eventually. I'm not kosher because I don't have to be kosher. I can eat pork and love it. Uh, Timon loves that. Yeah, I was waiting for the amen. I knew it was going to come from there. So in conclusion, I hope you can understand that Judaism and biblical Christianity are different. But I can also hope you appreciate the contribution that ancient Judaism is to our faith. We are built on those foundations. Whether it be the Old Testament scriptures, whether it be our Messiah Jesus, who was Jewish, not a white Caucasian from Europe in those pasty pictures. Our apostles, Jewish they weren't white Caucasian Europeans. I hope you can appreciate what you are building on. And I hope that you've trusted in the foreshadowed Messiah Jesus, the Son of God, because he's the only way to the Father. There is no other way, just Jesus. You know, as followers of Messiah, you're set free to serve. 
And part of that is actually reaching Jewish people. You know, when Paul wrote to the Romans, he said this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So this good news about Jesus' first coming is for everyone who believes. But then he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, God loves Jewish people. They are his people. And we can see Jewish people converted. We have a church in Israel that is right now planning to plant another church in Jerusalem. A new church in the city of Jerusalem to reach Jewish people with this good news. It's awesome. You know, God is touching all of the nations in this present era. And so I hope you're not ashamed of the gospel if you know it personally. Because it is the power of God, the salvation to everyone who believes. And if you're here tonight and you haven't yet believed it, I encourage you to talk to somebody, whoever may have brought you or invited you. Talk to me or Timon or Carl or any of our leaders. So let us live out our Christian faith so that others might see it and be drawn to the one that we love, who is the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to compare compare Judaism and Christianity and realize that there are a lot of common ground here, but we also see how much more you've done in the person of your son and how much you have fulfilled what you had already revealed and promised in the Old Testament scriptures and how that has blessed us, that we actually know you because your son has come and he has died and he has risen again and ascended to your right hand and is coming again to take his rightful place as the ruler of this world. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room will know him. Know him as Lord and Saviour because to not know him is to not have life. But to know him is to have life eternal. So may you work in such a way that we are all included in your family, rejoicing in the good things that we've received because of what Jesus has done. And we'll give him the glory and yourself too, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.